Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Ron and D-Days are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. We have a great episode for you. We have Ron Jorgensen co-hosting. And the Book of Mormon has been banned in Utah. Donald Trump has been indicted, and the LDS Church has issued a puzzling response. Mormon transgender attitudes have been revealed, and we're going to give you a fascinating analysis of LDS Boy Scout abuse, abuse rates, what's going on there. And a BYU-Idaho professor has been implicated in a hate group. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at mormonnewsroundup.org, or you can send me an email to kolob at mormonnewsroundup.org. You can also support this uh, podcast by going to Patreon. We'd like to invite you onto the program. Ron, how's it going? Excellent. Glad to be here today. Hey, now, how do you say your last name? Jorgensen, is that right? Yes. Now, so um, what's your background? Uh, who are you? Um, I am uh, ex-Mormon. I've been, grew up in the church all my life. Uh, about a couple of years ago, I went down a rabbit hole and, and came out the other side. And now I spend a lot of my time doing a lot of research in church history and a lot of his. And we're interested in the, the, the things way it used to be, a lot of a lot of vintage stuff. So I've kind of come on with a, uh, this masterpiece persona where I go over. Well, eventually, I'll start a, a, a podcast or a, a, a TikTok channel or something going over a lot of the a lot of the things that way it used to be in the church, a lot of history and uh, how things changed over time. So uh, that's a lot of things that I'm interested in in those topics. So I, I have a very vast library, not quite as fancy as this but uh pretty close yeah uh you know i first became aware of you you went on the mormonish podcast and you talked about emma smith a woman scorn the heartbreak a heartbreak of polygamy and uh, those are the type of uh things that you're interested in uh, uh what brings you to this space why do you you said you're an ex-mormon so why are you continuing to um talk about mormon related issues uh I'm extremely interested in figuring out how we got to where we are today. So uh, I have a long history. I've got pioneer ancestry. I've got John Taylor as my great, great, great grandfather. So I've, I've got family going all the way back uh, in the church. So I've got polygamous blood on both sides. So uh, I'm interested in knowing what my ancestors went through, uh, how they've came in contact with the church, what the, they were taught, and, and just trying to understand how things got to where we are today. So that's mostly just kind of my trying to find out for myself how things work. Yeah, that's, uh, that sounds like a, a really, um, that sounds like a really fascinating look. Uh, and I wish you the very best if you do form a podcast or anything like that. Um, I do have some experience in it, maybe not as much as others, but I... now you've got the Mormon joke of the week. We like to start every episode of the Mormon News Roundup with the Mormon joke of the week. And we release these episodes every Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to interact with your humble hosts here, you can join us then. What is the Mormon joke of the week, Ron? All right. So there's a nice young British convert woman who arrives in Salt Lake. She just gets off the train. And, you know, she's, she's never seen Salt Lake area and uh, it's vintage times. So 
she was looking around, walking around the countryside and uh, just trying to see what this, her new life is going to look like. And she comes across a polygamous farmer kind of standing by one of his fields and she goes up, well, I've never met a, a polygamist before. That'd be interesting to kind of go along and, and, and see what, what life is like for him. And uh, she goes up and sh start talking and, and, uh, and the polygamist being as he is, he's always kind of on the, the lookout for another wife. And he sees this beautiful young new woman from, from Britain. And, uh, he starts taking a little bit of a fancy to her. And as they're, they're talking and looking at the, the cows in the field, he notices one mother cow nosing her calf and just kind of in a very bovine way, just kind of rubbing noses. And, and he starts getting these romantic ideas and, and he turns to the, the nice young woman and says, boy, that sure gives me an idea something I would like to do. And she looks up into his eyes and, all nice and encouraging and says, well, go ahead then. They're your cows. Go ahead. <laughs> That's a good, that is the long, I think you have set the record. We're on episode, what is it? 63. That could be the longest Mormon joke of the week that we've ever had. So I think we're <laughs> off to a good start here. Right. Now we're hopping right into the news here, Ron. And this is still percolating here. Davis school district releases the details. This is uh we've had the complaint to, uh, you know, ban the Bible. And that has already been banned in Davis uh, School District here in Utah. Uh, and then now the Book of Mormon, it, it's up uh, its up on the chopping block here, Ron. And here's the complaint here. We have the details of why this parent said that uh, she didn't want the Book of Mormon in her schools. The complaint comes from Kaysville Junior High. It, spe it specifies violence, specifically the beheading of a person called Laban, and depictions of war, cannibalism, kidnapping, and torture. Quote, I don't want my child reading about murder, rape, and torture, and quote the complaint reads, or learning that it's okay to murder somebody if God tells them to, like what happened with Nephi. Should uh, the Book of Mormon be banned in Davis School District, Ron? I think when you get uh, laws that are passed where you're able to start banning books, then you're opening yourself up to all sorts of problems. And there are certainly things that are questionable occurrence in, in the Bible and the Book of Mormon and and if you're going to start banning books that that show all sorts of things that are degrading or or wrong or something like those, you can find those stories in scriptures. And then you're starting to open yourself up to problems where people will start wanting to ban the scriptures. So uh, I think if you're going to ban anything, you need, you need to ban all of it that has things of questionable stories or things that are bad or don't ban anything at all. So. Yeah, and you also found this that goes along with this. This has reached a national news coverage, but the free, and you brought this up here with the Freedom From Religion Foundation. They've weighed in on this situation, Ron, and what's going on with them um, and uh, in, in Utah schools? Yeah, they uh, they got the same kind of idea here. They want to so if you've passed this law that says you can ban these books that uh, have bad stories in them, then then you need to ban them all. So uh, either ban them all or, or don't ban any of them. But uh, I think banning books is, is, is a bad idea in general. So, Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I think that uh, most books should just be ready for consumption and that for, for anyone of any age, obviously there's some exceptions with incredibly graphic or um, 
you know, hate speech, uh, graphic sex, graphic violence, things like that. Um, you know, uh, some, a book that would uh, encourage pedophilia, something like that, obviously, or, or, or encourage bestiality. Yes, there, there's obviously limits to what books that um, uh, children should be uh, exposed to. The, you know, this Freedom from, from, from Foundation, um, this Freedom from Foundation uh, organization, they're running a provocative full uh, full page ad picturing the Bible and the Book of Mormon with a headline saying, ban these books in Sundays uh, in today's Salt Lake Tribune. And I guess this just really brings up the question for me, Ron, is, you know, you're saying, hey, we shouldn't ban books, but should there not be a separation of church and state in Utah? So, I mean, we're seeing an intersection here. Uh, we People are supposed to have separation of church and state, but also people have, you know, the freedom of religion as well. And both of these are in direct conflict here in uh, Davis County. That's a good question. I'm glad I'm not in there to make those decisions, but uh, uh, there should be separation in church and state. And there really isn't in Utah and there hasn't ever been. Um, I did another piece on Mormonish just a, a month ago that we went into that history, but yeah, uh, parents should be involved in that decision. Um, there should be a vote and they should make that decision themselves. So, well, presumably the parents in the Davis school district, they have the ability to elect their school board members. So by extension, they are choosing what type of school board members. And if they don't like the decisions that Davis school board make with regards to what books are being banned and which aren't, then they can, you know, run elections and vote other people into office that will reflect their values. So I do see this as a democratic process. It's interesting to me to see how it's all going to work out. I understand the difficulties with, I mean, we shouldn't be having state-sponsored religions and the Book of Mormon really, um, I mean, there's a lot of branches of the restoration, but it is a, a religion in particular that it is, um, you know, advocating for. So I can see the argument there, but also people have freedom of religion. I mean, if I want to have a Bible in my backpack or a Book of Mormon in my backpack, I really feel like a personal Bible or a Book of Mormon or a Quran or a Torah or whatever else that that should be allowed. The person should be able to have their own ability to, you know, worship how, when, and what they make. Any last thoughts on this one, uh, Ron? Nope. I, I agree wholeheartedly with you. They should be able to choose what they want to read, um, whether they post it in the libraries themselves. That may be another story, but. Right. Yeah. That, that's, that's the difference is, you know, putting, putting those type of things in the public sphere paid for with public money. A public school library is paid for with public money. Should a public school library be purchasing uh, religious texts for children? That's a difficult question, but I think that works that um, really rise to the level of that are cultural, really icons. The Bible is a cultural and a spiritual icon. It's not necessarily advocating for a religion. It's just a part of our Western, you know, our, our Western society. And in my opinion, children should have exposure to a wide variety of books, including religious texts, and I think you can have a separation of church and state by stocking these things in public libraries without advocating for a particular type of religion. Now, also in the news yeah. this week, you know, Donald Trump, he's been indicted. That has, um, you know, obviously made the news. But what does that have to do with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Ron? Well, I got this uh, article here from uh, Sarah Burris, who has uh, published this on June 7th. And it says, are you listening, Donald Trump? Mormon Church tells members to vote for integrity regardless of party. So the church has not given an official response to this, but 
uh, I, I want to read here what uh, what the um, the letter says. The church issued a letter with regards to this, and a letter urges members to quote be informed about the issues and candidates and quote and examine them within the context of the gospel. And some principles compatible with the gospel may be found in various political parties, and members should seek candidates who best embody those principles. Members should also study candidates carefully and vote for those who have demonstrated integrity, compassion, and service to others, regardless of party affiliation. Uh, Ron, is this a glancing blow at Donald Trump? That The timing of this seems awfully curious. It does look that way. I'm, I'm a little surprised that the members of the church wholeheartedly supported Donald Trump in, in the past, knowing the history that he's had. It hasn't been any... Uh, any hidden secret of his divorces and his uh, other dalliances or whatever. But uh, I'm surprised that we've gone so far as to support him in the past. So um, I think they're trying to separate, the church is trying to separate the people a little bit and say, hey, are you really sure you want to vote for this guy? Because he, he does have a lot of questionable activities that he's done in his past. So... <laughs> That seems like the understatement of the year. And of course, the yeah. church is a, uh, is a 5013C. As a 5013C, you cannot endorse any particular political party. You cannot endorse a political candidate. Otherwise, you could lose your tax-exempt status. But I do find the timing of this to be very remarkable, where it's, uh, the church in the statement also said, don't vote for um, the party line. And typically, a lot of Latter-day Saints, they vote for Republicans. So the church seems to, you know, if you go back and look at the Deseret News, a lot of the editorials, See, this is how the church really does it. It's through the editorial page of the Deseret News, where those people consistently and repeatedly really slam Donald Trump on a variety of issues. And that really kind of, to me, leaks the church's position about Donald Trump. And this particular letter, the timing of it is incredible. I don't think that it is a surprise to anyone that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a big Donald Trump fan. Now, our next article here was from PRI, and it's the politics of gender, pronouns, and public education. This is a fascinating study that was just published just a short time ago. And um, it talks about the basic question here is um, that it asks is, is gender binary, meaning are there two genders and two genders only male and female? And they looked at this from a partisan a lens and also a religious tradition. And they ranked different, um, you know, also Republicans, independents, Democrats, Protestants, Latter-day Saints, uh, you know, Catholics, Jewish, uh, religiously non-affiliated. And they basically posted them the question as to whether gender is really binary or not. And what, what did we find here with regards to Latter-day Saints? If you look in figure number one, and all of this is in our show notes, Ron, what do we find with regards to the opinions of Latter-day Saints regarding whether gender is binary or not? It looks awfully high, like the Latter-day Saints are very much gender binary. Um, looks like, what, 20% that are not, roughly? So that's yeah, so 81% yeah. Yeah, of Latter-day Saints believe that gender is binary, and it's basically, um, it's actually decreasing slightly over time. Um, which is kind of uh, curious to me, but that is very, very high. Among Republicans, it's 90%. Among white evangelical Protestants, it's 92%. But Latter-day Saints are third on this list of uh, uh, quite a few different uh, demographics here of thinking that gender is binary and binary uh, is there's only really only two genders. I want to look at another table here, which is uh, table number three. And it talks about the uh, strong views on gender by religious tradition. 
And if you, again, rank white evangelical Protestants, uh, uh, regular Protestants, black Protestants, Catholics, um, Jewish, religiously unaffiliated, if you look at this uh, figure three that says that you have a strong view on gender and that you feel strongly that there are only two genders, man and woman. Again, uh, Ron, what are we seeing here on this figure three with regards to where do Latter-day Saints stack up with regards to the binary views of gender? They are predominantly very strong uh, for just two genders with a little tiny bit on the side that uh, are a wide range. And then there are some kind of in the middle that aren't all that strong about it. Um, yeah. With the proclamation on the family where we've kind of made this very strong declaration that gender is a strong, is a core part of our eternal identity. Uh, there's apparently at least a, a decent sized chunk that, that don't go along with that. So I'm, it is interesting that it, both that it's so high that, that there's two gender beliefs, but then the, the, it's also surprising that there's some that don't quite go along with that. Yeah, there's second only to white evangelical Protestants in their firm belief, and at least 81% of Latter-day Saints feel strongly or believe, believe that there are only two genders. That is very, very strong in the United States. So here is the last summarization of this whole thing. 72% of Latter-day Saints feel strongly that there are only two genders. 70% of them feel that uh, young people are being peer pressured into being transgender. And 71% of LDS respondents feel that people spend too much time talking about their gender pronouns. Now, if you watched our episode that uh, talked about Elder Oaks' uh, young adult devotional, you will see that these really tick off. Uh, all of these were covered by Elder Oaks and the um, letter from Amy that he did. If, you, if you're not familiar with that, go back to our last episode. But yeah, this is all the talking points of the church and, and senior leadership of the church is well aware of this. They want to cement in um, that people shouldn't really, uh, if the implication of Elder Oaks talks is that oh, talking about individual pronouns, that's a bad thing. He didn't come out and say it, but that's what he said. And that people are changing genders every day. That's what he said. And again, he's, he's hammering home that that's not the case. And again, the two gender sort of situation. Um, you know, Latter-day Saints, they're really very fervent on the uh, transgender issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that talk by Oaks is, is rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I think they exaggerated a lot of things. There's nobody changing their gender every day, uh, but they're trying to produce this narrative that people are, and they're all so, and, and, and anybody wants to change their gender just off the idea of like, oh, we can change our genders. I want to do that too. It's, I, I don't know people that are doing it just because it seems like a bad thing to do. Yeah, you mentioned the family proclamation. And, the, and yes, the family proclamation basically talks about two genders, but it doesn't say that there couldn't be more. And so that's why the church has gone. If you look in the church handbook, the church handbook of instruction clarifies what the family proclamation says. And what it says is the genders that are mentioned in the family proclamation, those are defined very simply as biological sex at birth, man and female. So to really conform with uh, the handbook, the proclamation of the family and everything else, you need to really think of things as having two genders and two genders only. There's no fluidity and there's no room for any, um, I, I don't know, there's no room for any grace or anything like that. Now, our next article here is a uh, dedication set for Arkansas's first LDS temple as church growth continues in Arkansas and nationwide. I watched, this is a really beautiful building. The inside of it is um, 
really, really nice. I watched the video of the tour inside. Uh, Elder Bednar was there because he spent so much time in Arkansas. And in that video, they Arkansas is the diamond state. I used to live there. It's a great place to live. A lot of great people. A lot of great Latter-day Saints in Arkansas. Really treasured memories for me there. Arkansas is the diamond state. So inside of the temple, they put a lot of references to diamonds, which I think is a really nice touch. And in the video also featured uh, State Representative Carlton and his wife. They were both in my ward. I used to play in uh, an orchestra with uh, Sister Wing. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Representative Carlton Wing and Sister Wing. I used to be in their ward. It was a really nice look through the temple, um, a good PR piece for the church. Now, there's a lot of temples being dedicated all the time, but so what makes this newsworthy? Well, I think what is very interesting about this is that uh, uh, growth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Arkansas grew by 1,300 people, almost 1,400 people last year. Now, that does not seem like very much. 1,400 people, that doesn't seem like very much. But what's interesting is, is that is the top growing state in the United States last year was in Arkansas. And that was a bit of a surprise to me. I wasn't expecting that. So out of the entire United States, 4.5% growth in Arkansas. Um, that, that was a bit of a surprise. Why do you think the church is growing so well in Arkansas? Just kind of seems kind of random. That, that does seem awfully random. I've, I hear stories when they're closing wards and stakes in California and Oregon that everyone's moving to Salt Lake and Idaho. Um, they're closing a lot of wards and stakes in Salt Lake and Idaho as well, Utah and Idaho. Maybe there's a fair amount of them that are grow, moving to Arkansas for some reason. I, I don't know exactly why that would be, but that's the only thing that I don't know that the convert conversion rate really is really high there, but uh, it seems like more likely that uh, a lot of people moving in there. You know, you're probably right. It's probably members moving around. And that area does have a high, you know, I should have checked this in advance. I wonder what the growth rate is there in Northwest Arkansas, because that's the head of Walmart. There's a lot of jobs there. And that's, as the head of Walmart, you have a lot of high paying jobs there at the corporate headquarters, unlike your local Walmart. And obviously, a lot of Latter-day Saints, they have higher education levels than um, regular, you know, than the average United States citizen. So it could just be a factor of Latter-day Saints moving in. I think that you probably hit it right on the head. You know, I just want one last note, you know, 4.5% growth. Guess what? Back in the 90s, uh, Ron, that used to be the norm. That used to be the average. And now for church growth, that's best in the United States. Now, that's, that's uh, you know, we've come, most we've come a long way. Yeah, it's, it's shrinking most places in the U.S. And, and to have at least one state growing, that's, a, that's a, a promising sign for the church. But just the sh shrinking everywhere else is not. Yeah. Now, if you want to get in touch with us, you can leave us a voicemail. If you come on over to Spotify, you can leave a voicemail for us, which we could play on our next podcast episode. And while you're at it, if you could leave us a five stars on Apple Podcasts or give us a thumbs up wherever you are. We'd appreciate that. Now, one last note about church growth here. And Ryan Birch, who's one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite statisticians out there, he talked about, he, he tweeted this out. He said that I, if I've learned anything about looking at religion statistics, it's this. When it comes to growth, retention is easy and conversion is hard. So he thinks that the best indicator of future size of a religion is not the number of missionaries it sends, but how many children are in the pews. And if you look at the total missionary force for the church from 2012 up until now, 
Uh, the missionaries have really mostly stayed pretty constant, around 60,000 missionaries per year. These are proselytizing missionaries, not service missionaries, but about, it's about 60,000. And we've seen membership grow from 2012 to almost 15 million to past 17 million. So the missionary force, again, is staying strong. But as Ryan Birch said, missionaries out there, that is not the best way to grow a religion. That's not the best way. The best way to grow a religion is new children of record. And Ron, what are we seeing there? That's shrinking pretty dramatically over just a course of 10 years. So this, this is a statistic I've been watching the last several years myself and seeing how rapidly it's, sh it's shrinking. And it, it's not looking good for the church. I mean, the uh, the growing generation, they're, they're postponing marriage, they're postponing having kids, or they're just leaving the church outright. So um, there's a lot of shrinking that's going to be happening. It's, it's only going to be going down lower as time goes. And this really goes back to, if you think about, again, Elder Oaks, Young Adult Devotional. Um, he talked, what did he talk about? Did he talk about people going on missions? Absolutely not. He talked about birth rate. He talked about getting married young and having lots of kids. That was the focus of his message because he knows that the best way to grow a religion is by children of record when they're born into the church, into the covenant, and they're raised in an LDS home. The retention rate is so much higher than missionaries. Missionaries go out and the retention rate in missionaries is easily, you know, you make a baptism as a missionary, only 25% of the people remain in the church after a year's time frame. It's an incredibly expensive and um, tremendous endeavor, and it yields very, very fleeting results. That's why the messaging has really switched from back in the 90s. It was all about, hey, we need missionaries. We need to get out there, do your service, do your mission. Um, well, that's not really necessarily working as well as it once did, but having lots of kids and getting married young, that works a lot better and is, quite frankly, for some people, a lot easier. Any last thoughts on this church growth here? There's been a long history of the church promoting children, or people having getting married early, having kids early and often. Uh, I was looking just recently just through like the last 100, 120 years, and this has been a consistent message. And, and uh, birth control was was vilified for several decades uh even in the church handbook in the 70s it was uh, told it was you're going to reap the whirlwind if you use birth control so uh, i think in the 80s they kind of took that out and then they kind of softened their stance a little bit in the 80s and 90s on this whole thing but uh for, for now that now that the birth rate is shrinking so much i think they're going to see a lot of uh, maybe a resurgence of this talk from uh, past leaders of just making sure you get married often or, or not married often, uh, have a kid married early, have kids often. <laughs> yeah. Getting married <laughs> often that we used to do the getting married often thing. We don't necessarily do that as much anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, you know, that's not the only thing that's happening with church growth this, uh, this week here. Um, the Maidstone stake was closed here in the United Kingdom. And Nemo, the Mormon, he reported on this, and we're seeing a high number of uh, church. It's the Litchfield, England stake was closed, marking the first time that a stake in the UK ha had ever been closed. And this is the first stake. Uh, the first stake in the UK was organized back in 19, um, I believe it was 1960. Now, earlier yeah. this year, the Wadford, England stake also closed. And this past week, the Maidstone and Wadstone stakes were closed. So we're seeing a high. So the church is growing in Arkansas, 
um, tremendously. But in the United Kingdom, we're seeing a significant amount of shrinkage. What do you think? What, what, what can explain this? This is uh, it's difficult for me to wrap my head around is when how the church is growing in some places and how it's uh, shrinking in others. You know, how can this all be explained? Uh, the culture is going to be a big piece. Um, I think they're uh, in the UK, they're a little more liberal and a little more open minded. And the church is not uh, conducive to some of these ideas. And I think it's, it's kind of a, a Europe has often been like a little a leading indicator of what's going to happen in the UK. They seem to be trending a decade or so ahead of the rest of the, of the US. So I think in another decade, we may be seeing a lot of shrinkage that mirrors what uh, the UK is going through right now. So you seem to be saying that the secularization that took place in Europe about that really started maybe about 50 years ago and really took hold probably, I don't know, maybe in the 80s, but that is also coming over to the UK of the rise of the so-called religious nuns. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, yeah. The, I think the word the U.S. Is, is trending in that direction, especially after COVID. People uh, they stopped going to church for a couple of years and then realized that they didn't really miss it. So I think they're finding that it doesn't need to be as big of a place in their in their lives. So I think yeah. It's yeah, that's be... a good point. And and since the since the vast majority of church converts are people who have a Christian background, I think that the number of the people who join the church, about two thirds of them are Protestant. And I think around 80 percent are Christians of some sort. Um, so when the uh, United Kingdom becomes more secular, more atheistic, more, da, you know, less, uh, less religious, you're going to see a lot more state closure. Whereas Arkansas, you know, I lived there for a number of years. Almost everyone in Arkansas believes in God. It's just a fundamental fact. And a lot of them go to church or did go to church at one point. It's just a much more fruitful feel. Now, regarding this UK closure, you did find this clip here from the state president who's talking about closing this, uh, uh, closing this. Can you intro this clip before we watch it, Ron? Yeah, it's, it's some really interesting doublespeak on how he describes growth and what it means to have a strong religious area. And, and it's always been more converts, more... Uh, baptisms, everything's growing. That's how you see strength. But he's he's got a little def different definition here, and it's let's see what he, let's see what surprise. we got here from. Yes, yeah, so let's see what we got here from the stake president here in the UK. While he's about to close a stake, let's see how he casts the closing of the stake. Because you know, closing a stake that doesn't seem like a faith promoting event. But um, let's see what he said. Already kind of heard some things that are happening or have been happening in the London in the London area. There was a time in the church that we thought that growth was to have more stakes. Now we know that real growth is in the strength of man and not in the size or the, uh, the amount of stakes that you have. So this seems to be a talking point here uh, from the church. The, 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 it used to be that the growth of the church was the sign of the divine mandate, meaning that it is a stone cut out of the mountain without hands. Now it, the, um, I don't know, the, the strength of the church is not in total number of members or in growth, but it's in the strength of the individual members. Latter-day Saints themselves are more strong in their faith, and that's the divine mandate. We're seeing a shift in the talking points, aren't we? It, it, absolutely. But it's funny because even later in the same talk, he goes back and, and he talks about how once they've solidified their and strengthened their stake here, they're going to start growing again, as, and that'll again be a sign of, of strength when they are able to start growing. So he's kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth here, but uh, it's, it's interesting. Whenever I've seen 
some talk about uh, stakes that are shrinking or closing. They always try to spin this as we're going we're going to shrink down. We're going to we're going to uh, rebuild our base uh, so that we can position ourselves for future growth. And and it's it's always interesting how they're always trying to make this a really faith promoting uh, statement whenever they're closing down stakes and wards. Yeah, that's that's very interesting analysis. Now, uh, you brought this to my attention, Ron, and I was aware of it before, but it had been some time here. But leaked spreadsheets showing attendance numbers in UK and the Ireland um, up through 2020. This uh, does not include the COVID years, which most was most likely have dropped considerably uh, further. Church website statistics show about 191,000 for Ireland and the UK, but. Out of uh, 200,000 people in Ireland and the UK who the church claims are members, only 28,000 of them are actually attending church, which means that the activity rate in this area is only about 15%. And I just want to add this in here. You've got these uh, leaked numbers here, uh, Ron. What are they telling us about um, activity rates in the United Kingdom and Ireland? They are plummeting. I mean, they, they've gone down. Uh, I think that I can't read the numbers on this right here, but uh, I think it was about 15% that they've dropped over the past 10 years. And and only a couple of places are showing any signs of growth. Uh, and, and one of those was when they had moved some uh, wards from a different uh, stake into their, into a stake. So um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of shrinkage all across the board here. Yeah, this particular uh, uh, leaked document here shows the different stakes and whether they are growing in population or whether they're shrinking. And as we can see, the vast majority of UK stakes are shrinking in size. Only a few of them are growing. That helps explain the reason that we are seeing an unprecedented level of stakes that are being closed. And also, Ron, as you pointed out, you know, uh, last year, what did we see as far as total stake closures across the entire church last year? Um, because the church reports how many stakes that they grew every year. We get that in the conference statistics and in Deseret News articles. But the church won't tell us the number of stakes that they closed. We have to kind of do some back-end research. And what did you find out about stake closures in the church last year, Ron? Uh, stake closures last year, we had, I think, about 10 stakes that closed. And we're already at, uh, I think, eight that we've found so far this year. So we're closing a lot of stakes really quickly here. And uh, they're, they're growing a little bit more this year. Uh, so they, they may end up with the, the max or a net number that's higher. We'll see how the rest of the year goes. But right now it's, it's been bad. And even uh, for the wards and branches last year, we only grew by 15 wards and branches, which is the smallest number ever. Uh, for going back, I think there might have been some negative growth back over 100 years ago when they closed a couple of things down. But it's it's been, in anybody's living memory, nobody's seen a negative uh, ward unit growth. All of the church growth has fit from, from last year fit into 15 wards and branches. And there was something like 200,000. The church grew something like 200,000. Uh, the convert baptisms, this is from memory serves, were like 190. And then the children of record brought it up to about 300. But about, I don't know, about 110,000 people either died or had their names removed off the roll. So we had 200,000 people in the church last year. And the church only grew. 15 wards. What that tells you is all of those people are being packed into existing wards, which means that these existing wards 
we're very, very low in population to begin with. Now, any last thoughts on uh, church growth here or uh, Arkansas's growth, UK or anything else about church growth? What, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Well, I think some of the problem is the, the convert retention and also uh, members falling away that haven't removed their names from their, their records yet. So uh, I think you're going to have a, a lot more problems there. The only real growth we're experiencing in the world is in Africa, which is surprising considering the, the history on, on blacks and the church. Um, so it's interesting that, that that's where all the main growth is happening. So I think that they're going to be doubling down in Africa, sending more missionaries there. Uh, and I think they'll still continue to see a lot of growth there in the future. And I think it's going to be shrinking in a lot of the rest of the world. Yeah, the church is making a lot of investments in Africa, too. They're donating schools. They're donating, um, you know, desks. They're donating supplies. They're donating humanitarian. I think the church is seeing that Africa is, as Elder Bednar said in last year in the National Press Club briefing, that uh, Africa is one of the fields of growth and that the church cycles through fields of growth. And Africa is going to be the um, next uh, the next uh you know, the next place the church is going to grow, you're, you're absolutely spot on. Now, our next article here, this is very, very interesting and very controversial. This is from Public Square magazine. Latter-day Saint Enigma, their unexpected troop abuse rates. This was published on July 9, 2023. It asks the question here, Ron, are Latter-day Saints more likely to abuse kids through statistical analysis of the Boy Scout abuse, uh, sexual abuse case we have our first data that can support the answer to that. So uh, obviously, as, ever, uh, as almost everybody knows, the uh, church was part of the Boy Scout sexual abuse, uh, uh, huge class action lawsuit that had about 80,000 um, Boy Scouts that reported abuse, filed a class action. The Boy Scout of America went into bankruptcy. The church is on the hook there for $250 million out of a total uh, purse of, I want to say, like $2.3 billion. But what is interesting, what this article brings up is the church is bringing to the table uh, about 10% of the total purse. However, the church was responsible for about 30% of the abuse scouts. So if you use a statistical analysis here, what they're saying here in this particular, um, what they're saying is while Latter-day Saint affiliated troops make up 20 to 30% of all BSA troops, the proportion of Latter-day Saint abuses was far lower only 5.16% to be exact. So this article seems to be making the claim that based on the financial compensation, that being abused in Latter-day Saint congregations or uh, at least the Boy Scout settings and probably by extension, the congregation settings, that you'd be far less likely to be abused in a Boy Scout troop or an LDS setting than another setting. And that is obviously a very controversial claim. What, what are your initial thoughts on this, Ron? It, I find it encouraging. Uh, I, I, like the idea of the church not being as bad as some of the other environments that uh, are abusing scouts. So it, it gives me a little bit of hope on, on things to come and uh, how the church has been run. I think a lot of it comes from uh, in other troops, people would volunteer and they could self-select whether they're going to be participating in scouts. So you could find if you're prone to abuse or looking for that kind of thing, um, you could volunteer as a scout leader uh, in the LDS church. You're going to be selected by a bishop and he may not choose you if, and, or maybe less inclined to choose you if he thinks you're leaning towards that type of uh, lifestyle. So I think that hopefully that's why the rates are so much lower 
Um, but it, it, it is encouraging, and I like to see. Uh, I like that idea. I do. I do hope that that is the case. Absolutely. Now, this was a somewhat of a small sample that this uh, researcher went through, so that may not translate to the other area uh, to uh, a larger scope. And there also may be other contingent issues. For instance, there could be a culture within the church that says that you should not report abuse cases because the only people who came forward with the class action of the 80,000 Boy Scouts were ones who reported it. There could be a huge number. In fact, a lot of statistics show, especially with men, that only one-tenth of men report the sexual abuse that they're involved with. And the number is also very, very low for women. Um, so there could be, it, it could be just that the reported cases, this is an important delineation, the reported cases of abuse are less than the rest of the Boy Scouts, but that does not necessarily mean that abuse in general is less as uh, for being a Latter-day Saint Boy Scout. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it could very well be that. And it could be a combination of the two. Um, there's a lot of different factors that could be why our church abuse rates are lower. Um, I like the idea of us not being as bad, but uh, it could very well be that we're very much on par, but it's just hidden more. So. Yeah, let me just read one section here from it. it says, why do we see such lower rates of Latter-day Saint abuse? There are many potential reasons for this, which I reviewed here in a separate piece, but I have one main theory. It's the system of callings in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and other organizations. If you want access to children, you can volunteer and be given it very quickly. In the LDS system, you have to wait until you're called. And this has a throttling effect, creating lower rates of abuse. Is that sound reasoning, Ron? It, it sounds reasonable, and, and, I, and I like the reason. Um, whether it pans out that way or not is, is another story, but I, I, like the, I like the reasoning there. Yeah, um, I, I think it's an encouraging step. It's something that we should take with um, uh, very cautiously, and one of the reasons is because um, I, I wanted to uh, share this tweet, and it says that uh, Mormon abuse apologists are next-level evil. Um, she brags about the church having only 2,481 recently reported abuse victims. This creates ridiculous statistics claiming the church has lower rates of abuse than others, not factoring in LDS silencing and shame cover-up, which I discussed a moment ago. And I also want to give one final caveat on this particular piece. The person who wrote this is a well-known LDS apologist. And so I don't, the motive of the person involved, some people are calling that into question, um, I don't think that this is anything that you can definitely write home on and, and breathe a, a great sigh of relief, but I'm hoping that what has been reported is accurate. And any last yeah. thoughts on this entire situation, Ron? No, uh, any, any abuse is, is bad and anything we can do to, to reduce that is, is going to be a good step forward. Um, but uh, prom lower, lower rates are promising. And if we can continue to lower those rates and find more ways we can protect children is is a really important step forward for us. And they're, they're trying to do that. I've, I've been listening to the Brit Vengers podcast and they're, they're trying to push those things in, in the UK, doing background checks for everybody. I know in California, they've, uh, the state has mandated that. So the church is following suit there and, and, and just making sure that anybody who does have access to kids goes through a background check. Uh, I wish they would do that as a standard policy all over. Um, that would also be a big step forward because there's, there's been a lot of cases where people have been repeat abusers and they, they keep getting put in positions of authority over youth. And that, and that should be 
something that sh should be a simple step to just block those types of things. It's not going to stop everything, but it will stop some. Absolutely. What the Brit Benders did in the United Kingdom, it needs to be translated or it needs to be transferred to the United States and everywhere else where the church operates. That will lower the um, sexual abuse rates of children in particular. And that would be a great step forward. Our next article here, this is really, again, this has gone viral too here. This is uh, Scripture Central invites you to celebrate Moroni Day. This is the 200th anniversary of Moroni's first visit to Joseph Smith back in Palmyra, and it headlines here with Elder Ronald A. Rasband as keynote speaker. This is taking place on September 22nd. Yes, that is the fall equinox when Moroni came to Joseph Smith, gave him the gold plate. Uh, Ron, this is at the Hyatt Regency Ballroom, Salt Lake City. And uh, what's the cost? If you want to get into, if you want to go to this, uh, Ron, how much is this going to cost you? That's 250 per plate. So that's an expensive <laughs> meal. It better be some good food. <laughs> sure. And you got uh, LDS entertainers as well. And all of this money, um, where is it? So if you go, if you want to hear Elder Rasband speak at this, you have to pay $250 per plate. And then where's all that money going, Ron? That's all going to a church apologist organization. So yeah. it's, it's interesting how the the church wants to keep loves having all these church apologists these organizations like fair book of mormon central uh they don't want any responsibility for what they say they don't want to be held accountable for what they say or any of the theories that they provide um but they want to find ways that they can fund them so they'll, they'll often use third party charities or apparently even sending apostles at, uh, at fundraisers for them so that's uh this is this is a closer step than they've done in the past that, that I've noticed so it's it's interesting that they're doing this yeah. Now, um, if you remember back to the Book of Mormon, Ron, what is the definition of priest priestcraft in the Book of Mormon? I'll put you on the hot seat here, but uh, I think that you of anybody might know the answer to that. I think that's going to be using your authority in the church to obtain money. So if you're trying to get some filthy lucre for preaching or something along those lines, you're going to uh, be stepping into the line of priestcraft there. Yeah, now we don't know if Scripture Central is paying Elder Rasband, but he is literally preaching for money. Now, the money may not be going to him. I don't know the answer to that, but he is preaching for money, which we were warned about in the Book of Mormon. So I, that's why a lot of people are finding this to be very ironic. Now, the Scripture Central organization, it's a, a part of Book, uh, uh, Book of Mormon Central. It's a nonprofit organization that's, whose goal is to build enduring faith in Jesus Christ, by illuminating the Book of Mormon and other restoration scriptures, making them more accessible, defensible, and comprehensible to people everywhere. And one thing that's interesting here, Ron, about uh, Scripture Central is they are a 5013C, but when you go to their financials page, guess what? There's nothing transparent about their financials at all, unlike so many other 5013Cs, even in the Mormon-related sphere, like Mormon Stories or Mormon Discussions, that releases their financials to everyone. Gee, I wonder why Scripture Central doesn't want to tell us how much money they're bringing in. That should be, I believe that's some legal requirements on doing that. So I'm not sure what they're, how they're getting around those. Well, I believe that the legal requirement, it says that they will release them upon request, but they're going to bet those requests. Um, okay. You know, for instance, uh, Ron, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a 5013C. Enzyme Peak is a 5013C. 
there is no rule that says that it, that just a charitable organization has to disclose its finances. There's absolutely nothing that says that. So no, they, they don't have to tell us anything. And guess what? I bet you if I ask Scripture Central for their financials, I bet that they're going to screen it and I'm not going to get anything. That's very likely. Yeah. Now, who are the donors to Scripture Central anyway? So um, there's a bunch of foundations. There's a bunch of uh, very, very rich folks here. There's a bunch of uh, egg-headed folks here. But what I find to be the most interesting is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Foundation. So what happens here is um, you give money, uh, Ron, you give donation to the church either through a donation or through tithing, um, which then the church gives that uh, donation to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Foundation. They don't just give it. They don't just cut a check straight from the church to the Scripture Central because the Scripture Central is not an affiliated. What do they call it? An um, it's an auxiliary. What do they call it? A, forget the technical term. It is not supporting directly supporting the church's mission, but that right. they can give it to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints Foundation. Then the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints Foundation turns around and gives that money to the Book of Mormon Central who then puts on events like this where you buy $250 tickets to give even more money to the church's apologist. It's just a big gravy train of money that's going straight to these folks. Yeah, Mormon Stories did something similar to this a few years ago for the fair uh, organization. And I think there were money going from, from the church to the More Good Foundation. Uh, and then More Good would then send that money on to fair. So they're, they're, they're funding these... Uh, apologists, but they're not doing it directly. And they, if they were to do it directly, then they would have some kind of level of responsibility for what they say. Uh, but they're, they're, they want the benefits of having the apologists there, but they don't want to be responsible in any way for what they say. Yeah. And remember, uh, I, we don't know if he's getting, Elder Rasmund is getting paid for this event, but the widows might report based on leaked uh, documentation. We can figure out how much Elder Rasmund makes in general. And according to the widows might report, these are the leaked documents and the general authority compensation over the years, which all the general authorities ever since, um, I want to say it was about 1910 that the general authority compensation was leveled out. I believe it was around that time frame. Um, uh, and the general authority compensation, as we've seen from Elder Rasband here, his total compensation from all of church service is putting him right in at around, I think it's around four, uh, four to five million dollars of total church compensation, making uh, $260,000 a year, a large portion of which is tax exempt because as a religious figure, you're given parsonage and other perks which are written into the tax code that you don't have to pay that money on. So that 259 really feels more like about 300. Elder Rasband is an incredibly well compensated uh, person, isn't he? Absolutely. I would love to get some of that compensation myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, the thing about it is, Ron, you and I, we probably can't afford these. Uh, you know, I only have five Patreon subscribers, so I don't think I'm going to be getting um, anywhere near that $250 uh, plate dinner. Not unless I get a lot more Patreon subscribers. Um, so I can't really afford to go to these type of dinners. So I don't really know what, um, and plus I live on the East Coast. I don't really know what, what happens, Adam. But I found a video here um, that I think kind of puts us into what we might see at these type of dinners. And this is an old league video here from Kent Cannon, who was the president and CEO of the Beneficial Life uh, Incorporated organization who the church um, owned. By the way, this beneficial life, that's the one that the church bailed out or if you want to say gave a loan to. Remember the Enzyme Peak uh, uh, during the financial panic of 2008, beneficial life um, 
you know, they were in severe, severe difficulties in the church. According to Bishop Waddell in the last 60 minutes, they gave them a $600 million loan. They didn't bail them out. They didn't give them uh, straight cash, but they gave them a loan. Um, and so this is the type of dinners here that uh, I think that you would see with Elder Rasband. And I just want to play this clip for you. And we can just imagine that we're there with uh, Elder Rasband and the $250 plate dinner. Let's play this for you. Welcome to those of you that are uh, participating and attending your first Beneficial Financial Group event. Welcome to the Beneficial Financial Group family. Uh, we would like to take a special moment to honor a number of special guests with us here this evening. We extend a special welcome to President Gordon B. Hinckley, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Chairman of Deseret Management Corporation, uh, our parent. President Thomas S. Monson, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a former board member of Beneficial Financial Group and his wife, Frances. President James E. Faust, Second Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Boyd K. Packer, Acting President of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and a former Chairman of Beneficial Financial Group. We excuse uh, President Packer's wife, Donna, who is visiting with family in the East. We also welcome other members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and their wives, members of the presiding bishopric and their wives. That would be exactly the same today as it was anciently. So it's not a large corporation, and the apostles are not the board of directors. The Savior knows people by name. He knows their circumstances. And he directs us in our work. Uh, that looks like one happening dinner, Ron. Yeah, that was a pretty fancy one. Yeah, President Hinckley, you looked like a deer in the headlights there, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think that's the type of environment that we get is a lot of these um, senior church leaders like this, uh, Elder Rasband, uh, uh, President Hinckley, President Faust, they go to these type of big time dinners here because um, they do sit on the boards of a lot of organizations. For instance, the uh, First Presidency, they are the, um, the, the chairman of the Deseret Management Corporation, which is the umbrella organization for all of the church's for-profit endeavors like, the, like uh, Deseret News, Deseret Book, the Bonneville Communications, the hospitality of, of Temple Square, and all of the other for-profit endeavors. The church's uh, senior leaders, also the apostles, they sit, they have a rotating schedule of being three of the board members on there. And of course, at BYU, the first presidency is the chairman of the board at BYU and also other apostles sit on there. So this is something that is very common. We have Elder Rasband speaking. We have uh, senior leaders of the church. They, they are really in these type of um, cushy situations where they're helping to raise money or um, oversee these very profitable businesses. Is that what Jesus would have us all do, Ron? Or, or what's your whole take on this entire thing? It's it's interesting corporate structure on how they've they've organized everything, and it's it's been this way since uh, probably since Brigham Young. I guess even Joseph Smith was trying to start various uh, businesses at the time. Brigham Young was able to do it very successfully. He was extremely wealthy, and as corporate sole owner of of the church. Uh, it was when he died, there was a weird trying to unmesh his own wealth from the church's wealth. Uh, but even uh, the Reed Smoot hearings were really fascinating when they 
brought up Joseph F. Smith as prophet and they're asking him all the different corporations that he's in charge of. And, and he's listing, they're gone through and list like 20 different corporations. And, and he had even forgotten some of the ones that he was CEO of uh, forgotten that the church owned like the Deseret news and that, that he was the owner of it. Uh, so uh, it, I don't know how he has time to do a lot of these other business things as well as running the church. Uh, as it's, it's, it's interesting just how, corporate and how business like the the church has been over the course of its history yeah now i want to point a clarification i believe that the church was not incorporated under brigham young i believe it was incorporated in uh 1923 under heber j grant now, i believe that is okay. the case now you talked about joseph f smith of all the other businesses that he owned yes those were businesses that were incorporated as businesses but the church did not become incorporated until uh 1923 i believe that is the case unless you want to okay. correct me I, yeah so i, I mean it might have it might have been disincorporated with uh, the polygamy laws, Edmund Tucker's. I think it uh, closed everything down, uh, confiscated a lot of their funds. So they might have had to reincorporate after that. Um, oh, to keep the government out of the back pockets. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I'll you know I'll have to look that up. You know, it uh, it's just that the Elder Rasman here, he's not the only. This isn't the only time that he's been out there fundraising for other groups and headlining. You um you brought this to my attention here. He uh he was part of the American Heritage School dedication by Elder Rasman in Salt Lake City, and the faith-based private school's second campus is a decommissioned Latter-day Saint meeting house in downtown Salt Lake City with a historic stained glass window, and the American Heritage School, that's also what I would call an LDS-affiliated organization. It's not endorsed by the church. It's not necessarily given money directly by the church, but it's affiliated. Elder Rasband loves to um, help these uh, uh, LDS-affiliated groups um, you know, get money and, you know, um, use his clout as an apostle to build up the organizations. Is, is there anything wrong with that, Ron? It, it gets kind of sketchy. His, his daughter is a board member of the school and his grandchildren are going to the school. Uh, it says later in this article that he was uh, interested in making sure that this more people had opportunities to send their kids to a school like the one that he had sent to his to or his grandkids are going to. Uh, it's it's almost like ten thousand dollars tuition a, a, a year, I believe, for for these students. So it's going to be out of the out of the price range for a lot of a lot of families. Um, so these are uh, fancier schools that uh, more well-off members are going to be able to send their kids to. And, and some of the this education is is going to be very faith-based. Uh, they they quoted a, a young girl in there saying that uh, all of science is based on Jesus Christ. And that she's learning that from the school. So there's there's some interesting teachings that are going on here, and and some uh, I, I don't know I, I'd have to see more of the curriculum to see what they're doing, but uh, it's very religious based. Uh, all all the students have to show up using the BYU uh, style uh, dress standards uh, for all the teachers and all the students. So none of the none of the kids can have beards even. So I don't know. It's it's a rough school to go to. <laughs> yeah, I guess in some respects it is. You know, it's just he is headlining these type of events. He is fundraising for these type of events, not based upon his business acumen, because I believe that he made his wealth in the Huntsman Corporation, and then he also started his own business. So he's not being brought in as a, an acclaimed business leader, but he's really, I don't know how to say this any other way, he's really capitalizing or really cashing in on his apostle status 
to raise money and to provide favors for these other groups. And I guess a lot of people have a question. Um, a lot of people are questioning that. I, I thought this was a very funny uh, take on this here. And this was tweeted out here. And it says, people often forget that the Sermon on the Mount cost like 25 shekels a pop. And Peter's daughter played the liar during the intermission. I guess that's a dig on Jenny Oaks Baker here, um, providing the musical accompaniment, because Jenny Oaks Baker is also providing the music, and presumably she's being paid to do so either by Scripture Central or the church. So, yes, this is an entire, you know, this entire endeavor here is supposed to be raising money for Scripture Central, um, lining the pockets of, uh, of uh, church apologists. And I guess just some people have a problem with that. Let me give you one more tweet here, uh, Ron. I'll get your closing thoughts on here. This was from um, Moon Quaker Ruth. She said, hey, $250 is nothing. They speak twice a year at conference where the goal is to get people to donate 10% of their income for life. So I guess, you know, $250 is chump change, eh, Ron? Absolutely. 10% can be a lot more expensive. <laughs> I, and, you know, we were in our coordination call. You also brought this up. You know, this kind of brings up, you know, the Paul H. Dunn um, situation back. What was that, back in the 70s or back in the 80s? When was that? I think it was the 80s. Yeah, back in the 80s, you know, Paul H. Dunn, he was on the board of... Um, I forget the uh, name of the website there. Um, actually, you know what? I have it right here. Here, let, let me pull this up for you. Paul H. Dunn, whose church salary was forty thousand dollars a year, was the director of Afco Enterprises, a real estate venture in 1978. It collapsed after four years, and um, it was basically uh, brought to light that it was basically a thinly veiled Ponzi scheme. And he was capitalizing or cashing in on his namesake again to uh, help, uh, you know, prop it up, bring in donations. And even after it was brought, uh, it was in 1982, it was in 1979 that the issue started coming to life. He was still affiliated with them all the way up until 1982. Um, quite frankly, he was lucky that he was not indicted because some people in this particular situation ended up um, going to jail. But I, it just, all of this echoes back for Elder Rasmine. Did he do his due diligence on Scripture Central? Did he do due diligence on the Heritage School? Does he know their financials? Because you're, as a church representative, you're implicitly, you're really explicitly endorsing these organizations. Are we going to see a repeat of the AFCO Enterprises and the Paul H. Dunn here? Uh, I don't think it's going to be as likely that this is a big Ponzi scheme or some big fiasco that they might be tied to. So it may seem like a little bit safer uh, to in endorse these businesses. Um but I, 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 don't, I don't think it'll be as bad as what Paul H. Dunn went through, but it is, it is kind of sketchy. It's uh, very concerning. Now, our, um, if you want to leave us a, a note about this, uh, then we release all of these episodes on YouTube. Leave us a note about the comments. Are we overreacting on this? Or am I too worked up about it? Or is this just much to do about nothing? We want to know what you think, and we'd be uh, very grateful for your comments. Now, our next article here, which has also gone viral here, um, this is a um, Nate, uh, Ron Nate here. He is a BYU-Idaho professor, and um, he is affiliated with a group that's called Mass Resistance. It's an anti-gay hate group. And, and he's put this out. Um, uh, he's one of the leaders of this particular group in Rexburg because he is a BYU-Idaho professor. And he says that we need to stand up and protect children. And they're having, um, please come to the event, stand in the gap to protect children from groomers who debase womanhood and make a mockery of family values. And uh, Ron, I did look it up here. Ron, he really is a faculty member at BYU-Idaho. He has got a PhD in economics from the University of Connecticut. 
And I guess the Mass Resistance website, if you click on their website, they say it's pro-family activism, but it is absolutely riddled with, uh, I don't know how you could call this any other way, but other than hate speech, I, I don't think that you can call this anything else. They're very, very anti-LGBTQ. They're extremely anti-trans. They, uh, they want to uh, ban books. They, they, they're really, I, I don't know how you can call the mass resistance anything other than a hate group, which really leads me to believe, uh, uh, leads me to question, Ron, if, if Nate, um, if Ron Nate here, if he was associated with the KKK, if he was associated with, I don't know, um, a white supremacist organization, if he was associated with, I don't know, some kind of, uh, just some kind of a, a terrible uh, group that espoused horrible values, would not his uh, tenure, would not his teaching credentials at BYU-Idaho be brought into question if he was associated with um, some of these other hate groups? But because he's part of mass resistance and it's anti-trans, uh, then he gets a pass. I find that to be very ironic. Yeah, uh, it's also interesting that they're worried about uh, drag queens grooming children, but really we've had a lot more problems in the church in the past with bishops and these one-on-one -on -one interviews uh, that are grooming children and doing a lot more damage that way. There's, there's, the church doesn't seem to be fighting against that. There was, um, I've forgotten his name, uh, the Protect All Children Sam gentleman. Young. Sam Young. I was trying to say Steve Young, but I know that was a quarterback. So, yeah, Sam Young, he, he went through and, and found all sorts of, he gathered tons of uh, testimonials of people that have gone through and been abused or been uh, groomed by bishops. And, and he got excommunicated for trying to fight against and bring this to public awareness. Um, but since it's drag queens, he, he gets a pass. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, if Dr. Nate, if he belonged to the Proud Boys, um, I assume that he would be fired. If he belonged to the KKK, he'd also be fired. But if he bashes gays, no, that's OK. Because if you remember back to last year, there were two BYU-Idaho professors who were fired over not uh, totally affirming LGBTQ issues completely. They, they didn't come out in open opposition to the church. They didn't post on Facebook. They weren't activists. But there's been new questions introduced to BYU-Idaho that talk about LGBTQ issues, and they weren't strongly affirming the church's position enough, and that was enough to get them fired. So if you're on the far right wing in really engaged in hate speech, hate groups, towards LGBTQ persons, that's no problem at BYU-Idaho. But if you have the slightest qualm about the church's position on, um, on gay marriage or whatever it is, then you're let go. I think, I just find that to be very ironic. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, uh, and, I think they need to be more careful on, on the fringes and those edges. They need to pull it back in. But right now the church is supporting this kind of uh, rhetoric. So, Yeah, you know, and somebody dug this up here. They went through uh, uh, Ron Nate's, um, I believe it was his Twitter page, and found the family reunion, uh, the Nate family reunion. And um, every single one of this says, hey, we're white, straight conservatism and we're Christian. Uh, say no to kids. Say no to drag shows. The family proclamation. Marriage is only between two people. Say no to gays. Say no to trans. This is, um, I don't know, some people have called this a very, uh, you know, it's a very bigoted. A lot of people are calling this a very bigoted mentality. Is, is this bigoted uh, uh, a speech here or is this just people exercising their rights wrong? Uh, it seems pretty bigoted to me. And it's kind of funny considering the church's history on polygamy that they're insisting that marriage is only between two people. But uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point, considering the fact that the president of the church is currently married to two people, right? 
I mean, his wife, right. according to LDS theology, is alive in heaven, and she'll be waiting for him when Wendy and uh, and uh, Russell uh, join her. So, yeah, the irony is very thick. And, you know, this has gotten pretty ugly here. The mayor, Merrill, here, he's expressed concerns about the contention in the Rexburg community. He's saying that, you know, we're, we're very concerned here. The sad things, uh, the sad thing about this is a lot of folks are just jumping to the very worst. This has really taken Rexburg by a storm. And, um, you know, he, he he's going to have to have the chief of police here. It's gotten really, really ugly. Um, and Ron Nate here, he uh, testified in this and he said, there is no such thing as a child friendly drag show. It's robbing our kids of their innocence. And, um, you know, it's just really, really ugly here. Um, it's very polarizing in the community. And they seem to be making the argument here that uh, any person who uh, is trans or does not conform to um, societal dress and grooming standards, if you don't conform to society's dress and grooming standards, which says that men should wear pants and women should wear skirts and that men should have short hair and that women should have long hair, that they're saying, no, that's child grooming. Um, really, really ugly stuff here. Um, any last thoughts on this entire debacle, Ron? Uh, just to, uh, there's been, um, with this controversy, there's, there's been a resurgence of, uh, Morris, was Morris Young, Brigham Young's son who would, would dress up in drag and, and sing, yeah. uh, as in, 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 even for birthdays for, for profits, he would be doing all sorts of great performances all, all in drag and it was all in fun. So, but that was okay. But now, now it's, now it's grooming. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point there. Now, our next article here is, um, you know, we try to get through as much as we can in the short amount of time that we have. You know, the Heber Valley Temple that the church is trying to build in um, in Heber, in Heber County. I, no, excuse me. It's Wasatch County in Heber, Utah. You know, the uh, Heber City Council and a lot of the community members, they were upset with the church on this particular point because they said, you know, this... Um, it's gonna it's gonna upset the skies, you know, the dark skies. It doesn't fit in our valley, and a lot of people are having a problem with it. Well, guess what? This has also gotten pretty ugly here, uh, Ron. Um, they are uh, the church has lawyered up. They're, they're gonna take this to court because they want to. They really want to ram this through, and the church is saying that federal law allows them the ability to shine the lights in the Wasatch County, regardless of your city ordinance. In other words, federal law says that we have a right as a religion to be able to worship God in the manner that we want, and it doesn't matter what your city ordinance says, we're gonna override it. And the uh, deputy attorney general of Wasatch County is coming out on the side of most of this, a lot of the citizens in Wasatch County and saying, no, we don't want your temple, and we want you to obey our city ordinances. Um, the church is not taking no for an answer on this one, and they're trying to jam this one through. This this really bothers me. Um, the church has always often had a idea that rules apply to other organizations or other people, but not to the church. And and this is just one more piece of evidence in that same argument. Um, but I, I'm a photographer. I love astrophotography. I love things like this. Dark skies are very important to me and, and, and to these people as well. It's, it's not many places where you can really go and, and have a nice, really dark sky and see the stars. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm all for protecting the skies as much as we can. And just to see the church say, well, these, these rules don't apply to me. That's, that's, it's really frustrating and runs me the wrong way. Yeah, I, I want to read one thing here. So the church hired a real estate uh, firm here to represent them in case things go south and in case uh, that there's some kind of an issue. And uh, Loyal Hume, which is the real estate lawyer representing the church, 
said that uh, at some stage in the process, the church could rely on a federal law called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000. And what that says is, if you have a proposed structure that's for a religious use, then um, you can mostly do whatever it is that you want with this. So if, yes, if the city council comes to the agreement that says, no, we, we want you to build the temple in this way, and you're going to have to take the steeple down, and it's not going to be able to be lit, the church is saying, is signaling through its lawyers that, no, you know what, we're going to push this through on a federal level, and this could, again, uh, end up in a lawsuit um, for the Heber Valley Temple. And I don't know, just is that really the approach that we need to take? Can we not respect, we're building temples in places that we've never built them before. Can we just not respect the rights of the majority of the citizens um, and make this place as special that, um, you know, respect the rights? Do they have to be illuminated in the way 24 hours a day like uh, like they are in the Salt Lake Valley? I don't know, this, this is very troubling for me. Why do we have to have lawyers involved? Why can't we, you know, why can't we just compromise? You know, it would be nice if we couldn't. And, and, and then we really should. They should be they're, they're finding they're getting pushback in more places. Uh, we've had a recent situations where there has been pushback and they didn't want the towns didn't want temples built there. Uh, I think there was one uh, just uh, there was Cody, Wyoming. Was that a recent one? Yes. Uh, and also a couple, last year in Utah and uh, Elko, oh, shoot, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was a small, it was a small town just, just uh, east of Salt Lake, west, west, just west of Salt Lake. That was, uh, it also refused uh, a, a town, a temple in their town, and they moved it to another neighboring town. So there's, it's, it's interesting getting, even in these very Mormon areas, that they're, they're still getting some pushback on, on, on where they want temples. So it's, it's as they're ramping up this production, we'll see how much more pushback there is, but, but they really should be, if they're going to go into these towns, they should try to play nice and work well with the community um, and just kind of bullying their way in because they're the 800 pound gorilla just rubs me the wrong way. And lawyering up and saying, we're going to take this to federal court. I don't think that's the right approach. Um, definitely don't think that's the right approach. Now, we are on the Mormon News Roundup. We're on Instagram. If you want to follow us there, we have a number of uh, reels and other uh, items which you may find interesting. If you drop, if you come on over to Instagram, Mormon uh, News Roundup, you can leave us a like, follow that. We'd appreciate that. We have two, Ron, we have two last articles here for the week here. And this is, uh, this is really going viral here. The Mormon crickets here are uh they've invaded speaking of elko nevada they've really invaded uh, uh a couple of portions in nevada and this is causing a great deal of difficulties here you know for our podcast listeners ron what are what are, what are you seeing here that's an awful lot of crickets they're going to need uh, a few swarms of seagulls to come in here and uh, clean things up here yeah they are that's absolutely insane i just cannot believe uh you know, the legendary, you know, you're the historian, the legendary tale of the Mormon crickets in, what was that? It was that 1849. Was that the legendary Mormon crickets, Ron? Are you familiar with that story? I, I think there were a couple of years where some seagulls came and they had some cricket problems, but I think it was right around 48, 49, 50. Uh, so yeah, right around there. Which is somewhat of a legendary tale, perhaps a bit exaggerated if I uh, know my history right, which I definitely, maybe, maybe I don't. Yeah, it, it's the, the, some seagulls were there. Whether they came in giant swarms and saved everybody is is questionable. Um, but yeah, they they were. It, it's been over exaggerated. Yeah, 
lot, a lot like like so many of the faith promoting stories. That does take us to our final article of the uh, week here. And you found this one here, uh, Ron. Uh, what's going on with Hugh Grant? What does that have to do with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints? He is starring in a new movie about. Uh, this is a missionary. Let's scroll on down here. This is this is the, the heretic. He's, he's going to start filming in July. So this is a, a new horror movie, uh, and it's going to be an interesting one, as they some missionaries are kind of stalking somebody. So we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. There's been a lot of uh, new media and popular in the popular world with uh, movies and TV series coming out in the last couple of years uh, based on Mormonism. So this is this is going to be an interesting one to see. I'm, I'm excited for, to see how it comes out. Yeah, I do run another channel called The Mormon Movie Reviews, which I've reviewed about 100 Mormon movies. I'm going to have to put this on my list to uh, review. This does bring up an interesting point for me. True, uh, Mormon true crime is obviously extremely popular. We had Under the Banner of Heaven. We had um, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. We had Murder Among the Mormons. We've had a lot of true crime. It does extremely well at the box office. But this is the question, Ron. Are you familiar with any LDS horror movies? Because this is being billed as a horror movie. Is that the first of its kind? Uh, I don't know of any other Mormon horror movies. So there may be some that are, are, I'm not aware of, but that, not that it's been real popular. Yeah, I, I don't know if you would call Ronald's Little Factory. It's kind of a horrible situation. I think that's as close as you would get to a horror movie. That kind of was a kind of a campy independent film that was released last year. But yeah, this could be breaking new ground. Um, you know, usually when it comes to mainstream cinema, you're usually going to be relying. You're not going to have faith promoting stories, uh, LDS faith promoting stories. Those do terribly at the box office. The only thing that does well is these type of uh, grimy, grungy true crime where people are getting killed horror type flicks that's what sells and uh these filmmakers absolutely know it uh ron hey we made it to the end of the mormon news roundup. i want to thank you so much for coming on it has been a real treat to have you as a co-host it's great being here this has been a fun yeah, week kind of reviewing these things yeah absolutely really appreciate it i wish you the very best in uh, your future podcasting endeavors or whatever else i'm sure that you're going to be appearing on a lot of shows i'll be anxiously uh awaiting watching those and just remember, uh, for everybody out there, we uh, we new episodes of the Mormon News Roundup. They're released every Sunday, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this is a shout-out to Weird Alma on Bandcamp this, uh, Bandcamp.com for this episode's music. And thanks so much for ruminating with us on the Great and Spacious Beehive. Remember, remember, no one out of hand could stop this podcast from progressing. So long. <laughs>